Hello and welcome to an extra special episode of Batman Nightcast, the show that highlights the Cape Crusaders comic book adventures as chronicled by some of our favorite writers and artists. I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And listeners, I was not exaggerating when I called this episode extra special. You are listening to one half of a Batman podcast team-up event featuring us as well as our better halves from the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. And they are here with us now. Please welcome Misters Michael Bailey and Andrew Leyland. What's up, guys? I get the and credit. I love the and credit. And Anthony Stewart Head as Giles. And Larry Minetti as Rick. And Andrew Leyland. It's just it's just so good. I love the and. I, I guess my only question is, if this is the team up, are we the new Teen Titans or are we Batman and the Outsiders? <laughs> These are, these if we're are Batman and the Outsiders, uh, Siskoid will hate us now. So, you know, I think we better be the Teen Titans. So. Yeah, I just, I just heard him turn us off. Those, those are the only options? I, I... Well, Batman rather famously nowadays doesn't really work as I mean, we suppose we could be world's finest. There you go. Yeah, let's go with I'm that. Good, I'm good with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, we'll go, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Because and... either, way, either way, we're all winners. So, yeah. <laughs> we're the all winner squad. <laughs> but, but but now, because of us teaming up, it turns out that Chris and I are, are related. And, uh, yeah, apparently I'm sleeping with Deathstroke. So I, I took I took the hit on that one, Chris. <laughs> and you're smoking at way too young of an age. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, folks, we talked about doing a crossover or a, a team up for a while. Um, a couple of years. Uh, yeah, maybe. but you didn't expect him to go off the rails this quickly, did you? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I did, actually. I kind of planned for that. <laughs> Okay, who had three minutes in the poll? Um, pretty much since we launched our shows, we talked about like what, what would happen if we crossed over. And I think that's because at least one of us on both shows was kind of like, I would rather be doing what the other guy's doing. Why don't we just like swap partners? But <laughs> some of that kind of show now. Yeah. <laughs> we put our keys in the bowl when we get to the to the show to the recording studio and see what goes. Well, like, all right, we definitely want to be the Teen Titans. I'm definitely Robin, who's Starfire. <laughs> okay we need to move on <laughs> uh i swear we actually we really did try to coordinate some kind of crossover last year for the 80th anniversary but events conspired to make me hate batman <laughs> wow <laughs> the hardest part I, I i swear the hardest part was deciding what material we were going to cover and we bounced around ideas for original graphic novels prose stories and fiction, longer story arcs from Legends of the Dark Knight or other things, and I am reluctant to name drop what we didn't end up going with in case we actually get the chance to come back and do them in the future. Ultimately, folks, what we landed on is a pair of Batman issues that might seem like a less ambitious selection, and by that I just mean these are not a continuous story. Uh, it's not a two-parter, so we are going to cover one issue on this episode of Nightcast, and then Michael and Andy are going to cover the other story on an episode of The Overlooked Dark Knight with Chris and me as the guests. I hope. kind of depends on how the next hour goes. <laughs> In terms of crossover, we're like Buffy and Angel. We're thematically linked with the same guest stars, but we're not like the recent Crisis crossover in which one episode hasn't f***ing heard here because it's owned <laughs> by a different channel. Ooh. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not angry about that in any way whatsoever. Yeah, I was going to say... Arguably, it was the best episode. Shut up! <laughs> 
I was going to say, because these stories don't connect, this isn't the kind of crossover where you need to read or hear both parts of to get the full story. It's it's more like that month where the Justice League fought analogs of the Avengers and vice versa over in the Avengers comic. Indeed. Having said all that, uh, when it comes to done-in-one Batman adventures, I think we settled on a pair of books that are worthy of our two shows coming together, because these issues feature some of Batman's greatest villains, and they are told by probably the best-regarded and most influential creative team the Dark Knight has ever had since his creation. And that is the team of writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams. What do you guys think of this creative team, this pair, their their place in Batman history? Uh, what a bunch place. of hacks. Yeah. <laughs> what a waste of goddamn time reading this comic was. You said we were going to cover something worthwhile, dude. Yeah, no. I thought we were going to cover Brian Azzarello, like a good no. writer. <laughs> no, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams are on their own Mount Rushmore of Batman. While you've got your other four creators that we can argue incessantly who belong on the Mount Rushmore of Batman, and I would imagine that between the four of us, we all have four different heads on there. <laughs> these guys are off on their own around the corner. Um, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams reinvented Batman, and essentially everything that has been done subsequent to this owes to these two gentlemen. But by the same token, I don't think they were ever as good doing this character alone than they were together. They are like the Beatles. And if that doesn't queue up Come Together being the song that Ryan puts at the end of this show, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, to take the monument uh, comparison further, you have your Mount Rushmore and then O'Neill and Adams have their own Washington Monument and Jefferson Memorial. Mm. Because Andy's right, uh, it was never as good as when they were together, but they have work on their own with the character apart that I think stands up to even the best Batman stories produced over the history of the character, not counting the one where Denny put himself in the story. <laughs> uh, really weird but no i mean when you when you when you consider adams kind of getting into the back door of drawing batman by drawing brave and the bold those brave and the bold issues as originally presented are amazing and o'neill in his own writing and then going on and editing the character for 20 years and and adams kind of defining how the character looks forever afterwards mm -hmm. you know you you can't you can't put them with the other creators almost because they transcend them they are the game changers they are the paradigm shifters yeah neil adams is to batman what todd mcfarlane was to spider-man he redefined what that character looked like for not only for an entire generation but subsequently yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, it's these guys are it, 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 it's amazing what they achieve, because basically any interview you read with them, they were like, well, we weren't really a creative team. I mean, despite the fact that they did this and Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Uh, at this around the same time and other projects, they weren't like, you know, they, Denny O'Neill would write a story and Julia Schwartz uh, would um, assign it to Neil Adams to begin with. I think later on there was more of an idea that that these guys were it, obviously, because they were they did every issue of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. But, you know, there were Irv Noviks and Bob Browns and and other artists in, involved with O'Neill. And, and then Frank Robbins was writing stories for that Neil Adams drew, including introducing Man Bat around this time. But 
these two guys together when they got them together. I mean, it was like a it was like a, a special jam, you know, or or something. And they started to figure out, and I, I think they kind of collaborated a little bit more as we'll get into with these particular stories. I think there was a an idea that these two would work together. But yeah, I mean, the modern Batman comes from this. This is yeah. where you know the the shackles of of the the uh, the the Batmania that had come gone and backlashed against the comics. Uh, we're shaking off. It was a back to basics approach with Batman, and part of it did have to do with the fact that Neil Adams started drawing a uh, a more shadowy, uh, cooler version of Batman over in Brave and the Bold, and fans were writing into Julius Schwartz and say, "Hey, how come the real Batman's over in Brave and the Bold?" Uh, and ticking him off. Uh, but uh, yeah, you 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 can't really. I mean, these guys. When it, I mean, short of you know Bob Kane and Bill Finger, I mean, you gotta owe these guys. A mm. lot for what we call Batman. They rebrought gothic horror back to Batman, a genre that Batman yeah. excels in much more, pretty much than any other of the the main core superheroes. That was something that I definitely picked up on because I reread almost all of the O'Neill Adams issues within the last couple of months, and I always. I mean, I read a lot of these stories decades ago. Um, it had been a while because I had just sort of taken for granted that, oh yeah, these guys were like you know the the big the biggest like Batman creators. Like they had that place in prominence. But it's I'd sort of that it just sort of like I, I had let that go and just kind of taken it for granted. But and I remember like always hearing that you know after you know Batman sixty six and, and what the character was in the sixties, then in the early seventies when they came aboard, they brought Batman back to being the creature of the night. That just seemed to be the phrase that I had heard a lot whenever I heard about the O'Neill Adams stories. And then rereading them, I was like, yeah, that's that's like the, the gothic horror aspect of it that you mentioned, Andy. It's definitely, I mean, how many, not just in terms of the art style with the the heavier shadows and, and the mood and atmosphere that O'Neill was cap or that Adams was capturing, but how many stories in this run deal with uh, supernatural and horrific themes and everything like that. And, it's less apparent in the two issues that we're going to cover, uh, which have more kind of, tradi- of traditional Batman rogues. Um, but even still, you do find places, whether it's simple, just panels or, or, or ideas in here that do kind of feel, have that, have that gothic nature to it and everything. So, uh, Okay, so let's get into the first issue that we're going to cover for this crossover. Batman issue 234. Uh, this has an August 1971 cover date, but would have hit the streets on June 10th of 71. At least so says the website Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Which puts it exactly a year and five days before I was born. So everybody wish Andy a happy birthday when that is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> For the year before I was actually born. <laughs> Uh, this book sported a 25-cent price tag for 48 pages. The title logo for this comic is Batman with Robin, the Teen Wonder, and shows both the dynamic duo individually in circle panels at the top corners of the cover. This new branding for the title originated with issue 230 just a couple of months earlier, in part to reflect that many of the issues at this time included a backup Robin solo adventure. The cover was penciled by Neil Adams with Dick Giordano inking, so, you know, it's just kind of average when you put those two together. The image shows an an alarmed-looking Batman 
tied up on the bowsprit of a wooden ship that is sinking into the water. Looming huge over the ship is the floating head of Two-Face, smiling out of both sides of his mouth. A caption above the Dark Knight says, The return of Two-Face. Twice as evil, twice as dangerous. Fellas, what do you think of this cover? Uh, It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I love the look on Batman's face as he's strapped to the boat, the implication being he was rendered unconscious and has only just woke up, so he didn't know the situation. It's got that wonderful 70s trope of the floating head in the background to let you know who the bad guy is. It's an undersold cover when you compare it to others of the era, like the the Secrets of the Waiting Graves was quite a gothic cover, and obviously Joker's Five-Way Revenge is another symbolic one. But it's certainly effective, and it's nice to see Two-Face back after what was a considerable amount of time, was it, since we'd last seen Two-Face? Oh, yeah. Yeah, last (laughs) seen in Batman 81. Right, so that's going back some considerable time. (laughs) And there is is a theory amongst certain people who write about this stuff is that Two-Face was ripe for reinvention simply because he hadn't been sullied, for want of a better word, by the TV show. Uh, I don't think the TV show sullied anything. I still think that first season is one of the most faithful adaptations of era-appropriate comics ever. But for some reason, Two-Face escaped being used on the television show. And he was he was also very, very suitable for this era. There is um, very much a gothic horror look to Two-Face that suits what they were doing with Batman at this time. Uh, I love the logo. Just because it has the, the Batman and Robin that look just as good on a comic book cover as they do on your wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know why that makes me happy to think about that. That, you know, like if like kids in the 70s and 80s could have had these, you know, because I think weren't these put on stickers at one point to like, mm-hmm. like the ancestor to the fatheads, I would say. <laughs> yes. I mean, the Batman lettering itself is kind of uninspired, but they're there. And the color scheme's a little weird. Uh, I never think Batman looks good in orange. But from a graphic design, uh, not only the image itself, but like the the trade dress uh, comes together in a very handsome package. Yeah, this uh, that Robin logo was used by Mego on all their Robin packaging. And uh, recently they used it for the uh, 70s version of the Robin 80th anniversary special. Uh, so they, they they dusted it off and put it on a, a new comic that just came out recently. So, uh, yeah, I love this cover. I think, um, you know, this is another case of Neil Adams pushing the boundaries of comics because, I mean, this is uh, Two-Face's face is a, a surprint or a color hold. Uh, and uh, I know Adams gave uh, Saul Harrison and Jack Adler in the DC production department like ulcers and and uh, migraines because he was constantly saying, yeah, you, you really can do this. I swear. Just try it. And they're like, well, I don't know if we can do that. I mean, you read any interview with Neil Adams and he'll he'll tell you how he pushed stuff like this through. But I mean, what kid could resist picking this cover up, even if you didn't know who Two-Face was? He's it's such a great visual. Uh, I mean, this this just jumps off the rack at you. Uh, This story has been reprinted in uh, The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which was the first place that I read this many, many years ago. Also been reprinted elsewhere, but uh, where are you guys reading it? Do you have a copy of this issue or other, something else? We have so many copies of this issue. I don't have the original. I had a lot of the Neil Adams originals. I had this. I had Joker's Five where I had the first Prince of Ra's al Ghul. I sold them to Thunder Chips of Florida a couple of years ago. But it's one of those stories permanently reprinted. 
every time there's a two-faced collection of stories in there i first read it in um, a british reprint magazine called the superheroes which was egmont publishing's attempt to break into the uk news distribution market like marvel had done but dc did it much classier they did it with a monthly magazine painted covers long before alex ross was a thing and each issue would have three complete stories in they started off with the big ones, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then quickly moved to rotating the story. So you'd get a Flash story and a Green Lantern story and a Justice League story and so on and so forth. So my first reading of all of these was in black and white. Uh, I still think that the splash page of this, which we haven't covered yet, is much better in black and white than in any colour form I've ever seen it. (laughs) And I think certainly the gothic stories, the Hammer Horror-esque stories, lend themselves to monochrome better than they do to colour. Whereas I think the Two-Face story, other than the splash, that does lend itself more to colour because it's more of a big superhero story than a gothic horror story. Yeah, Yeah. like uh, Chris, I first read this in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told back when I got it in, I think, 1990. Uh, for the purposes of this episode, I dug out that. I dug out a the cheap, cheap, cheap copy of the Batman by Neil Adams Volume 3 trade because I wasn't going to pay full price for that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just not superior. And I, I bought the digital copy when it was 99 cents. And the funny thing about the digital copy is that it has all the, the backup stories, too. But they didn't redo those like they did this story. So it's basically like when you're watching a deleted scene from a movie that they put back into, like they put it back into like, or an extended scene, but the special effects weren't finished. Mm -hmm. So you get to the end, you get to the next page and it's like, oh, they just scanned this. (laughs) (laughs) They they didn't do anything to like make it look better or anything. But yeah, I, I I agree with Andy though, that uh, I kind of wish I had like, like it had been in Batman from the thirties to the seventies, even though it was not, it was after that book was published because I would have preferred to have read this in black and white for the first time. Uh, I actually did. The first time I actually came across this was black and white as well, but it was in a, it was in a a little paperback book uh, that uh, was put out by Tempo. They put out some black and white paperbacks uh, in 1977. Yes, Michael, I was born with a comic in my hand from the womb. Uh, and <laughs> I'm just saying, was, okay? <laughs> I know. I mean, I was only like less than three and I had this book. Yeah. Uh, this was definitely my first exposure to Two-Face. And in fact, the cover reused the panel of Batman and Robin swinging into the face of the clock that Harvey's like holding on to the hands on. So uh, it was, you know, I mean, what kid could resist that? It was really weird because they had like two, they had this and then the enemy ace story that O'Neill and Adams did. And then they had like two um, Silver Age stories drawn by Sheldon Moldoff. So it was like, like you talk about night and day and black and white, how different that artwork was. It was like a, like, wow, what the two, in a way it was like, okay, this is the Batman I'm getting in the comics right now. And this is the Batman that's on all the merchandise that I buy for the most part. And it's like this in the TV show. And it was just like, I was stuck between these two different versions of Batman as a very young kid. But, uh, I do have the the I looked at the uh, greatest Batman stories ever told reprint um, as well. I, I've got the paperback version. I still got my hardcover version. that's beat to hell, although I did get a better hardcover uh, later. But, yeah, that's 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 what I perused here, because, yeah, I try to avoid those more recent Neil Adams reprints, especially when he started redrawing stuff in it. And it was just like, oh, no. So <laughs> I have actually the original copy of this issue and I got it, I think, 15 years ago or something. 
uh, it, if memory serves me correctly, it was at like a, a consignment shop or a pawn shop or a thrift store or something. And it must have been where they just purchased some guy's like whole stack because it was basically three long boxes uh, just kind of sitting in a corner. And I just kind of thumbed through them. And I remember I found this one. I found Batman 250, uh, which is the issue right before Joker's Five-Way Revenge. Fortunately, they didn't have that one. I got these two Batman books and then all four issues of the Shadow War of Hawkman. Um, so I picked up these six comics and I swear I paid $5 for all of them. So this wow. this issue cost me less than a dollar. Now, if you didn't know that this was a Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill book, and I'm assuming the guy who ran the shop didn't realize that, um, if, it, if it wasn't that, then my copy looks like something you would only pay 50 cents for because it's not a pristine copy. Uh, and also, I mean, at the time I grabbed it, I was just like, oh, cool, like an old Batman and Robin book. I didn't even realize, like, when I picked this up that it was the same issue because I knew the story from the greatest Batman stories ever told, which didn't have the cover. So when I was just looking at the cover of this, I was like, oh, cool, Batman Two-Face. I was like, yeah, this looks kind of old and retro. I'll, I'll pick this one up. And, and once I opened it up, I was like, oh, it's this story. This is a famous story. So Yeah, and like many comics of the time, the cover scene doesn't actually happen in the story. So. <laughs> well, I can forgive him that in the 70s. I do wonder, just chatting about this, with uh, if we're talking about where I'm reading it, one, I bought them off comics. But I also dug out the two Blue Ribbon Digests because I've been reading my digests recently because they are great. And this was reprinted in Batman's Villains Digest number 14. I dug these out. I say dug them out. I turned to the left and there they were on my bookshelf. Uh, Just to compare (laughs) where Neil Adams has done some, some redrawing which is what Chris was alluding to earlier, for the reprints, the hardcover reprints, he has redrawn some of these panels. And I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. So I dug out the digest just to have a look. I do wonder, in the discussion, well, I know it was Neil Adams' Batman that, that essentially brought me to DC Comics, but I wonder if that's because Adams and John Romita, who were drawing Spider-Man, both have a similar vibe. They both draw very realistic environs in which these larger-than-life characters exist. Yeah, I'm wondering if Adams just wanted to put Banthas in the background. Uh, and um, his, his I, I wouldn't mind so much him. the Banthas in the background. It's when he inserts the superfluous scene with Two-Face <laughs> talking to the Joker, which essentially repeats what they talked about on page four, and it's completely unnecessary. You know, in my head, I was thinking, yeah, it's sort of like him doing the Lucas special editions of his own work, and then you guys went there. So, yeah. All right. Let's get into the story. Half an Evil is written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Neil Adams, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, and edited by Julia Schwartz. The annual Gotham City Merchants Parade moves through the streets as the business district. Thousands of people watch the floats and the massive balloons, but nobody notices a pair of men dressed like circus clowns skulking around the float for Janus hot dogs. One of the clowns points a gun at a woman dressed as a mustard jar on the float, telling her to keep smiling and not to panic the crowd, while the other clown cuts the ropes holding the Janus balloon above. Untethered to the float, the hot dog-shaped balloon with its slogan, Doubly Delicious, floats above the parade and rises into the air until it is caught, deflated, and drawn into a helicopter hovering above the parade. That night, the familiar bat signal shines out over Gotham. 
In the office of the police commissioner, Jim Gordon suffers the whining and arrogance of city councilman Arthur Reeves. Reeves finds it unconscionable that Commissioner Gordon would tolerate help from a vigilante and expresses his doubt that in the Batman's abilities by suggesting he could take him one-on-one in a fight. Of course, when Batman sneaks in through the window and gives Reeves a proper scare, the city councilman bolts. Gordon starts to tell Batman about the hot dog balloon robbery when an officer interrupts them, claiming that the natural museum is being robbed. When Batman arrives at the museum, he watches a speeding getaway car exchange gunfire with a police cruiser in hot pursuit. It seems like such a public demonstration that the Cape Crusader wonders if it's not actually a distraction from the real crime being committed. Slipping into the dark museum, Batman catches the real robbers, the two circus clowns. He kicks the gun out of one clown's hand, but the other tosses a smoke grenade to cover his escape. Giving up on that clown, Batman focuses attention on capturing the other. Under threat of more physical harm, the captured clown tells Batman that his unknown boss always keeps his face hidden, and that he often flips a coin. The last thing he tells Batman is the loot his partner stole from the Natural Museum was a book, The Diaries of Captain Bai. At a hideout across town, we learn, just as Batman deduced, that the villainous mastermind is Two-Face, who plans to decipher a secret code in the diaries of Captain Bai to find a hidden fortune. Batman sussed out Two-Face's involvement based on the clues, Janus Hot Dogs, Doubly Delicious, and even Captain Bai. In his penthouse, Bruce Wayne recounts the tragic origin of Two-Face for his butler Alfred, how District Attorney Harvey Dent fought a war against crime in the courtroom until a gangster hurled a vial of acid in his face during a trial. That acid not only ruined half of Harvey's face, it split his mind, turning him to a life of crime. Eventually, though, Harvey's mind and face were fixed through plastic surgery until an explosion during a robbery undid all the repairs. Researching Captain Bai, Batman learns that the old captain's two-masted schooner is docked at a pier near Gotham's Twin Rivers. Racing across town in the Batmobile, Batman sees that Bai's schooner has already cast off from the pier and is drifting down the river. At the pier are a pair of Two-Face's armed thugs who open fire on the Batmobile as it drives up. The gunmen don't realize the car is operating on automatic pilot, however, until the Batman leaps out from behind cover and knocks them both out. As Batman prepares to swim out to the schooner, a sudden explosion rips through the vessel. Batman watches in astonishment as the ship sinks, wondering why Two-Face would have gone through all of that trouble just to scuttle the ship. Sometime later, a vagrant named Billy the Tramp sleeps one off on an inflatable tube floating in the river, when suddenly the mast of Bai's ship rises out of the water, catching the sleeping Billy's inner tube and hoisting it high into the air as the ship rises from the depths of the river. Batman watches from the shore, having guessed that Two-Face stole the giant hot dog balloon to store in the ship's hold and then inflate so it would rise again after drifting far enough away. Batman slips onto the ship to wait for Two-Face, but he's distracted when he sees the Vagrant sleeping in the ship's rigging high above. So distracted that he doesn't hear Two-Face sneak out of the hold in a wetsuit and scuba gear. Two-Face clubs Batman and ties him to the mast. As the Dark Knight regains consciousness, 
Two-Face finds the hidden treasure, gold doubloons, and pops the balloon so the ship will sink again, taking Batman to the bottom of the river with it. As Two-Face boards a rowboat, Batman points out that it won't just be him that dies. Two-Face will have killed the homeless man up in the rigging, too. Two-Face pretends not to care, but as he's rowing away, a nagging feeling begins to pester him until it is overwhelming. He takes out his scarred coin and flips it for the fate of Billy the Tramp. The clean side of the coin comes up, so Two-Face turns back. He boards the ship, climbs up the mast, and carries the vagrant down with him. By the time Two-Face gets down to the deck, the Batman is waiting for him, having easily slipped the ropes. Two-Face attacks in a rage, but Batman knocks him out. As Captain Bai's schooner sinks again, Batman heads back to the shore, carrying two unconscious bodies. The end. So guys, was this story worthy of inclusion in the greatest Batman stories ever told, at least circa 1989-90? Yes. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next week on the ship. <laughs> Uh, no, it was, because by and large, this contains everything that has since become a massive cliche when it comes to Two-Face stories. There's all the, the double clues, doubloons, Spanish for double, bisect, the, all the other stuff with the, the, what's his name, the two hot dogs that get stolen up. All of that has become cliche with Two-Face stories. Him not being able to do anything before he tosses his coin. The plan that has a plan within a plan, because of course it does, because it's Two-Face. But it's not for to level the criticism that this is riddled with cliches at it when this was the first story to do it. It's also the first story to seriously bring back Two-Face, as we've already discussed, as a major threat to Batman. What really strikes me as important about this one, though, is how understated Batman is in this story. He's not doing anything particularly superheroic in this one. I mean, he does use the cliche of expanding your chest so that you can escape from ropes later. But other than that, pretty much everything he does in this issue is vaguely plausible. I, I think it's a classic just because for all the reasons Andy mentioned, but also because you don't need any continuity for this outside of the history of Two-Face, which they do in like five panels, which were for this era was good. Because usually when they retold an origin, it was it was a little more extended. Uh, you, you don't need any background. It's not continued into another issue. It's not part of a sweeping major crossover storyline uh, that you need to pay $100 or more to keep up with. It's just a simple one-and-done, published in an era where simple one-and-dones were the norm, but I think so much time has passed, and the language of comics has changed so much over the decades that it do, it's not quaint, but it's just like, oh yeah, you can do all of this in one story. You don't need to take 15 issues to go into the history of Billy the Tramp. <laughs> and ha and his secret connection to Two-Face's background or whatever. It's just, you get in, you get out, there's humor. I love the bit at the beginning with Arthur Reeves uh, talking smack as Batman sneaks in behind him. Uh, I, I'm assuming this Arthur Reeves met a better end than the Arthur Reeves from Mask of the Phantasm, <laughs> uh, which I didn't notice until like three or four years ago. Because uh, I read this in like mm. 1990, I saw Mask of the Phantasm in the theaters, and I've read and watched both of those numerous times. But it was only like a couple years ago. Oh yeah, he's the guy. Yeah, he's the guy. Batman scared. That's right. That's uh, 
I, I guess those guys read a couple Batman comics at some point. Well, Chris, Chris knows how much I love Arthur Reeves from Mask of the Phantasm just because of when he goes, <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what we don't know, guys, is that Arthur Reeves is our white knight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <so>. Booby. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Andy mentioned the expanding muscles thing. This is where I first read about that, and just because I'm uh, just asking somebody to tie me up just so I can, I can experiment with that might be misconstrued as a, as a come on, uh, which I, I don't want to do, but I'm like, does that really work? Cause it's one of those comic book conceits from this time period. And Denny O'Neill loved to riddle his stories with them. That is just like, Oh, it's just like, this is just common knowledge. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I wonder where that, I guess that came up in his escape artist training. Yeah. It's a Houdini uh, thing. Houdini yeah. actually did that. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what I love is that this story, even though it's not evenly, it is kind of split in the middle because there is there's a commercial break of Batman with like his fist, you know, like clinching his fist, trying to figure out why he sunk the boat. And there's the narration, which I both love and hate, which is like, have you figured it out? It's like, I didn't know I was supposed to do homework <laughs> while I was reading this story. I was just trying to enjoy. God, all this pressure. It's like when they put like Interlac or Kryptonian and don't give you the translation. It's just like, I don't need this in my life right now. But I, I love that it just it just stops. And then there's this whole, you know, it's the, the resolution but it almost feels like the Batman TV show that we've got to the end of the first episode and now we're going into the second episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, that uh, Denny O'Neill said that Julius Schwartz would basically tell him to put those type of things in there. You need to ask the reader if they figured it out yet, you know, and, and uh, which I don't know, you know, I don't know if Denny O'Neill would do that on his own, but that was, that was Julius Schwartz's modern version of the little flash hands, you know, that are pointing to things. Did you notice this, you know, uh, coming out of the caption box? Um, and by the way, if you guys like want to read a really good book that's got like all the behind the scenes of this era of Batman, I can't recommend enough The Batcave Companion from Two Morrows by Michael Urie and Michael Cronenberg. That's a wonderful book. There's a lot of info on these stories in there. But uh, yeah, this uh, it's got a Neil Adams cover, too. But um, yeah, it, it deserves inclusion because in the greatest Batman stories, because one, it's by O'Neill and Adams. And two, huh, it is the reintroduction of Two-Face and if this story hadn't happened, I don't think I'm not sure Two Face would have ever taken hold like he did. Because I remember as a kid when the comic books would show Two Face standing there with Joker, Penguin, Riddler, Catwoman. I'm like, why is Two Face so important? He wasn't on the TV show, you know. <laughs> He's not on the cartoon. I don't have any toys of him. But um, yeah, I mean this this story uh, cemented Two Face's importance because he had like like we said earlier, he had not appeared. In a new story since 1954, there was a couple of World's Finest where some alien turned Batman into Two-Face or something, and that was a reference to him. But Harvey Dent had uh, returned to being Two-Face after being cured in Batman number 81. And in fact, the panels that we see where his plastic surgery is undone in this story, it's really cool because Neil Adams just totally redrew what Dick Sprang had drawn in Batman number 81. I mean, they're they're exactly recreated, which is which is really cool because you wouldn't think Neil Adams would. He's Neil Adams. He wouldn't, you know, do that. But he homaged Dick Sprang because Dick Sprang's Dick Sprang. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's you know, you can't two face, obviously, has, you know, transcended comics. He's appeared in two major Batman films. If it wasn't for the story, I don't know if any of that would have happened. 
somebody probably would have revived him, maybe maybe even Steve Englehart, but would it have like clicked like it did here? I don't know. Yeah, and if without this and these brilliant reveal at the top of page seven, which is I presume is a turn the page reveal in the original issue. It is. Without this, would we have gotten his reinvention in the animated show? Which is arguably, once again, one of the best interpretations of Two Face ever. I think that cartoon show I think that cartoon show may be better than a lot of the comics. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I heard Richard Maul's voice every time, you know, yep. <laughs> every time Two-Face said anything, say, don't pretend you're not awake, old foe. You know, that type thing, you know. Yeah. I just I just, I hear that the whole time, every time I read it. Yeah, I think that's the most telling thing as well. When we're reading these, we don't hear Adam West. Well, I do if I'm reading a 50s issue. Or Christian Bale. We hear Kevin Conroy. And even the supporting cast, I hear Ephraim, was Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. was back with Alfred? Yes. I, I hear his Alfred not Michael Goff. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the influence that show has. And I like Michael, so I love that the origin is one page and done. Even with all the convoluted stuff about he's been fixed and gone back to being Two-Face. All that, it's one page and we move on. One of the things that I really love, and I, I, I had forgotten about it from the first time I read that story to when I was coming back and looking at these stories again recently, is on that reveal. And you're right, it is a, like a turn the page when you get to page seven with a close-up of his face. The coloring on this, there's no distinction between the clean side of his face and, and the scarred side. It's just like his left side is kind of misshapen and molded and everything, but it's not green skin. It's not red skin. It's the same original coloring as, as what you would expect flesh to be. Uh, it's a little bit darker, almost like it would be bruised on the bottom of page eight. Uh, when you, when you see more of like the, the sprangified version or the, what the, the reverse of that would be, I guess Adam's taking the, the spring version. So later on, it's a little bit darker, but it doesn't look like it's like a, somebody drew a line through his face. And just colored one side differently, like subsequent versions of Two Face have done, and I kind of like that effect better in this one. Yeah, in, so it's in like the digest. In... It is that in the digest, it's like the old Lee Ditko panel of P- half Peter Parker, half Spider Man. On the comics Ollie version, it's been recolored, like you say. There's there's no clear delineation of it just being a split in half. It, across his forehead, it looks like it's only affected a little bit, but the majority of it's on his cheekbones and his eye and his mouth. Yeah. So in the original version, it's not green or purple on that side? Nope. Oh. You, I mean, the cover, the, the Two-Face cover, his, the right. left side of his face looks more reddish purple. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see that. But on the inside, now I'll post a scan for this on the thing, it's pretty much the same flesh tone. It's, I mean, it's it's more heavily shaded, and there are a little bit more colors. Like, But again, it, it would almost be just sort of like a bruised effect, not so much like it's it's miscolored or something like that. It's not green or red like you would assume. Let me ask you guys, when we're talking about Two-Face, I know, you know, nowadays, especially like after the Dark Knight uh, interpretation in the film with Aaron Eckhart, the modern version of Two-Face where he looks like he's literally been skinned. Do you guys, I mean, I, I get that that's a cool visual, but at the same time, it's like, how is that more realistic than this? I know that maybe acid would disfigure you, disfigure you more than this, but how would you still live? I mean, how would you not die of infection? From, from you know being skinned like that you know what i'm saying i just i i it's like one of those cases where realism they've just went overboard with the realism of, of comics and i mean you can level that at a lot of the nolan films if you want to get nitpicky that they made it so realistic that it gets ridiculous because it can't be realistic you know this can't happen and i prefer two-face like this myself 
Yeah, because um, we know what acid thrown in somebody's face looks like. There is a model over here who had acid thrown in her face, and she's had a, her face reconstructed over the years. So we know what it looks like. Was that uh, was that Jerry Hall, the Joker's girlfriend in the first one? <laughs> it was not Jerry Hall, no. I think it was Katie Piper, I think was her name. Mm. But, I mean, yeah, it looks cool in The Dark Knight, but here it does genuinely look like he's just been disfigured, mm-hmm. which, is, which is better. I think it's it's one of those things where the the tone of your Batman and the tone of the story, you kind of need to match the the tone for Two Face. I mean, I don't think the Tommy Lee Jones look for Two Face would have worked in The Dark Knight. I think that would have just been a complete derailment of the story. I, I think when you have a a movie like The Dark Knight, which is so grounded that I have made the case that it's not an actual superhero movie. It's a crime saga movie that just happens to feature men in costumes. Um, I think the the Aaron Eckhart version of Two-Face is more visually and thematically appropriate for that type of movie. Is that the best? I mean, I also think, I mean, I'm now at this point, and I love The Dark Knight as one of my favorite movies, but I think that is as far in that direction that I want a Batman story to go now. I'm you know, course correcting coming back the other way. I don't want something as silly as the Tommy Lee Jones version. I think this is more of a, a middle ground compromise where you can have the left side is obviously scarred, obviously disfigured, where you know whether like which side of the face you're looking at. Almost like um was it the Mel Gibson movie, The Man with uh the Man Without a Face or something like that? Yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Like You can do that effect where it's obvious, but it's not nauseating. And it's um, and it's also not like how do you – it's like, how are you still alive? Like you should have like <laughs> flies and maggots picking away at the dead tissue on your skin. Like not that far. So Yeah. Yeah. I mean I love the visual. Don't get me wrong. I got a Hot Toys figure of him. But it's just – it's like now you can't see Two-Face without them going in that direction hardly. And I, I just – I. I I, and, I, and I agree that it's according to what version of Batman you get, but you can go, you can go so far. It's like, well, we need to make to make this as realistic as possible. It's like, yeah, but the guy's still running around like that. He's not getting it treated, you know. As he's as as Jim Carrey says, he's picking at it, and it's never going to heal, you know. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah you, you get John Romita Jr.'s interpretation of it, and um, I don't even remember the name of the boot now. That short-lived miniseries that Scott Snyder did, where it does look like he's had his face skinned. Uh, and then you compare that to Neil Adams' cover to the annual that he did, I think it was annual 14, or mm. um, Faces in Legends of the Dark Knight. Yes. Yeah. Where it's it's a far more believable interpretation of what this would look like, rather than just... I mean, my least favourite is the one where they basically have the eyeball on its stalk yeah. and nothing else. And you're like, really? That's where you want to go with this? Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, you you teased it before we even started, but the opening splash page. Yeah, that you know that was the background was actually Neil Adams' pencils. They just reproduced Neil Adams' pencils with no inks, and uh, that was another thing they told him. Yeah, we can't do that, and he's like, Yeah, yeah, you can. I, I'll show you how, and, and so they, <laughs> so they did it. But so uh, if that's just his pencils, then I wonder if that's why this has always looked better to me in black and white because I still maybe. think pencils uninked pencils look better in black and white one of the best things i ever got to see was when we were in london a couple of years ago um the excel center not the excel center the big millennium dome thing that james bond falls on in the world is not enough i cannot even remember what it's called now anyway that place had um an exhibition of dc comics and yeah there was a lot of stuff from the films in there but there was wall upon wall of original artwork 
and you could actually look at it and see the pencils drawings and the tip x marks <laughs> and the notes from the editor and actually just looking at the pencils you realize how much of this stuff doesn't make it through to the finished printed version yeah so i wonder if that's why this does look better in black and white because it is just purely the pencils and that looks better uncolored yeah, I yeah I would I would really be interested in seeing that because um, I've recently read uh, the Nathaniel Dusk miniseries, which is colored from uh, Gene Colan's pencils without inks, and it's a jarring effect. I like it, but it's kind of weird looking. And I, I like and now that I'm thinking about, it, I was like, you know what? I bet that would look a lot better in black and white. I think a lot of Gene Colan stuff does look better in black and white. Yeah. Um, but that series in particular, and and now, yeah, as I'm looking at this page, I was always kind of. I was like, that is a really weird effect in the background. I wonder how they did it. And now I was like, oh, yeah, duh. It's just, it's not inked. It's the pencil effect. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's so many comic artists. I mean, a lot of people, if, I think if people saw like Kurt Swan's pencils, they would have a different opinion of Kurt Swan because, I mean, there's so much stuff that he did in his pencils that never, ever made it to the page because nobody could ink all that. You know, and nobody tried, really. There's very few artists that tried. And, um, yeah, I think there's some art, you know, the, the comic, you know, comic books, especially back then, uh, this was daring because, you know, Neil Adams himself said they, they were literally printed on toilet paper back then, you know, so the, the printing, uh, you know, the advancements in printing weren't there. The paper stock was horrible. Uh, although I do think that the paper stock of the time, there's something about that pulpy, cheap paper stock that you get these in this era, like Andy and Michael said that with these, you know, DC had a very gothic theme running through almost every title. Even Teen Titans had gothic stories, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it had a horror tinge to everything at DC, partially because the mystery titles were selling really well. But there were these earthy colors that they're all over this story. They're all over the cover. They soaked into that newsprint page and they cre- they themselves, the, the medium that they were printed on, Add to that atmosphere to a point. And and I mean, I do agree that, you know, guys like Neil Adams, I mean, there's something to be said for the black and white because, uh, Andy, I actually got some of those Superhero Monthly magazines back in the late 80s from uh, Bud Plant, the comic distributor that mm. you could see advertised. And I, I have a handful of those. And I agree. That's the first time I, other than that Tempo book I was talking about that I saw Adams in black and white. And it's gorgeous. And but But there is something about the coloring and the newsprint of this time that added to that that pulpy, gothic feel of, of these stories. Before we go and kind of wrap up, I wanted to mention that the original issue, as I said, it was a, it was a big one. It has a backup Robin story called Vengeance for a Cop, which is written by Mike Friedrich with Irv Novick art. Looks really good. Uh, and then there is another story, which is a reprint. It's Batman and Robin Trail of the Talking Mask by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. Uh, this was reprinted from Detective Comics 335 back in 1965. And... It's, I mean, I like Carmine Infantino. I think he is one of the best Silver Age artists there ever was. But, I mean, just when you have in the same book Carmine Infantino and Neil Adams' Batman to compare. <laughs> I wow, was going to say is, exactly the same thing, right? It is not kind to Carmine Infantino. <laughs> it looks, not, it looks no. fine. If this is the only story you're reading, it looks great. It, it, this story in particular has like the, the Batman 60, even though it preceded Batman 66. I mean, there's a, a panel on page three of the two of, of them, them running, running forward. Yes. yes. You see them running right towards the camera on panel three yeah. and it looks like something out of the, out of the show. It's wonderful. 
but gosh, you just turn the pages and you see the, the O'Neill, the, the Adams pages. It's like, ooh, this is kind of cruel to do this. Yeah. <laughs> And again, I'm just going to say for all those people who are negative towards the 60s TV show, come on, read this story. Dude. Yeah, Tell seriously. Me this isn't Adam West and Burt Ward. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, I just wanted to read one letter from the letters column. The first letter that is printed, Dear Editor, there I was reading Takeover in Paradise in Batman 230, saying to myself, wow, I figured out th- I figured out this case even before Batman. Sure, I had Mouse pegged as the killer as soon as I read page 9. I eliminated Shades right from the start. The person who everyone says did it is never the killer, at least not in comics. Now watch, somebody will write a story like that and fool us all. So anyway, there I was, thinking, well, Frank Robbins didn't fool me this time. I caught the clever way he revealed the culprit. And then, page 15, I was almost as surprised as the Cape Crusader himself. Mr. Robbins is to be applauded for the clever twist. Anybody who can stomp the world's greatest detective, Batman, not me, is good at the game. Signed, Bob Rosakis, Elmont, New York. (laughs) <laughs> <Here they are. laughs> yeah, so. he stumped the answer man <laughs> <laughs> that, might have been the, that might have been the origin of the answer man feature. that's right yeah i love reading uh people who would either go on to write comics or work for the company yep. in their uh in letters i recently i i reread and it's it's appropriate to mention this it was the first uh it was green lantern number 76 uh, <laughs> and alan brenner has a letter in that issue oh yeah uh, which is not about that issue, obviously, but it's just like, man, he just can't get away from historic stuff uh, in comics, can he? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I just want one thing about this story that that's, I scratched my head. when. So was Captain Buy's schooner a tourist attraction? Why would a schooner that belonged to a, a pirate or why would it be just docked at the marina? I, that's the one part I'd. It's Gotham get. City. I mean, they have giant <laughs> typewriters. <laughs> a pirate schooner at the marina would be, yeah, that'd be a tourist attraction in Gotham City of this era. Okay. I, I, I think this one little line that said it was a tourist attraction, but it's just, it's just kind of like, it's like, it's just, oh yeah, that's just been tied there for 150 years. Nobody's moved it. You know, it's just like. <laughs> L- little known fact, uh, there was a restaurant that got shut down by the health department, uh, you know, just because they, they, just, they scored a zero, which. Yeah. I don't know how you do that. So it was it was a big scandal there for a while. I was going to say I actually had to just look it up because I want to see when Bob Rosakis actually started working for DC, and it was like 1975. So it was just a couple of years after this. Yeah, they gave him the keys to the comic mobile. Yeah, the comic mobile. <laughs> him and Michael Uslan were out driving the comic mobile, like you know, like the guy that produced the Batman movies was out like delivering comics, like the Good Humor Man or something, you know. <laughs> All right, uh, last thing, just before we go, um, other than the opening splash page and other than page seven, which has the big close-up shot of Two-Face, what is your guys' favorite page from this issue? If you could have one page of original art from this comic, what page would you want? Uh, Andy? Uh, I am just scrolling through the pages. I think page 11, because I love that shot of Batman in panel three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can see that, I mean, Batman's conflicted emotion. I mean, he's in his hand. You can just, I mean, he's got the little shaky lines around his face. I love the, and, you know, Neil Adams really brought emotion to uh, comic art in a lot of ways that it didn't exist before with his 
illustrative style. You know, I mean, it was like it's it's a very it's a that's a very complex emotion to show in in lines on a comic book page, and he pulled it off. Uh, Michael, uh, page three, just because I love the shot of Go- of Gordon <laughs> laughing at the bottom of that page, uh, and the kind of the smirk on Batman's face is. Reeves is running out of the room. It's you know just and, and at the top the shot of of Batman coming in behind him. Uh, it's, it's just a beautifully laid out page. And just like I mean, how terrified the guy! Like the guy is so startled, his glasses fall off his face. Like that. <laughs> uh, Chris, did you agree with uh, with Andy with page eleven? Oh no, I, I like page eleven, but I think I would actually pick page eight because it's got that that. The, the panel that was the cover of that tempo book where they're swinging at uh, it's got Robin in it too so that way you get Batman Robin Two Face and yeah I'd probably pick that one I I actually I would go with page ten because you get Batman in action beating guys up and the Batmobile moving mm-hmm. all right well thank you guys for joining us uh, listeners I hope you enjoyed this first part of the overlooked Nightcast crossover um, uh, obviously. Uh, Michael and Andy can both be found on the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast where they cover Batman stories. But where else can you guys be found? Michael Bailey, where else can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcastosphere? Ah, it's actually the same place you can find the Overlooked Dark Knight. It's fortressofbailytude.com, which is home of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network, which is me, uh, pretty much, and two other guys. It's it's not as exciting as your network, and uh, it's in kind of uh, well, we're in a rented trailer right now, uh, but we're working on getting into larger digs soon. But you can listen if you like me talking about Batman. There's Bailey's Batman podcast, and there's views from Longbox and from Crisis to Crisis. Lots of fun stuff there. I'd say you got multiple Batman podcasts and multiple Superman podcasts. How you make that work? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Andy Leyland, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And the Palace of Glittering Delights is my vanity project where I talk about whatever the hell I like. That's over on 2TrueFreaks.com. I try and get an episode out every two weeks. I don't always succeed, but I try. Uh, and coming up on that one, we've got another Spider-Man one taking us up to issue 100 Ooh. of The Amazing Spider-Man. So I will thank you guys. That was great. <laughs> So I will have covered every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man up to issue 100. And I also do listen to The Prophets, uh, Deep Space Nine podcast with Paul and Bill and Dave. And that's on Two True Freaks as well. That's coming to an end when we're near the end of season seven. All right, uh, folks, this conversation, as we have said, is going to continue on a forthcoming episode of the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. For now, though, we are going to take a short promo break, and after that, Chris and I will be back to cover your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. Did you leave the car running, Andy? I did. I'm not sure why, but I did. It's important. Like getting these comics from Ryan and Chris's Nightcast offices. Why are we getting these comics from Brian and Chris? So, since Nightcast isn't covering what they originally set out to cover, I thought it would be fun to talk about the Jim Starlin run of Batman. So, we're getting the comics from them to do that. And and they know that we're doing this? What? That we're covering Batman issues 414 to 430? Yeah, totally. I, I checked in with them and everything. So, you got permission to get these comics, which includes the storylines Ten Nights of the Beast, The Cult, and The Death in the Family. I... Totally told them we were covering these books, yes. And we're starting these episodes in May. That is, if you actually edit them on time. 
Yeah, Andy. The the series starts in May and can be found on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Busting my balls and everything. All right, right. Let's let's hurry up. There are listeners that want to hear this, and I have to get back to Atlanta in 28 hours so I can get my flight home. No problem. I got the comics right here. What's going on here? Andy? Mike? What are you doing here? Why do you have our comics? Say, Mike... Yes, Andy. We didn't get permission to take these comics, did we? No, Andy. And when you told me to get the box out of the car, you were really picking the lock to get in here? Yes, Andy. So what do we do now? Well, uh, we could try to talk our way out of this, but when I tell you to run, run! The Overlooked Dark Knight covers the Jim Starlin Batman run, a multi-part series of episodes beginning in May of 2020. From the grisly dumpster killings, to a death in the family, and everything in between. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and Spotify. I'm gonna barbecue your ass in molasses! Okay, we're back with listener feedback. On the last episode, we covered Detective Comics number 471 and 472, in which the Batman was captured and unmasked by Professor Hugo Strange. Our first comment was from Clinton Robinson from Coffee and Comics, who said, You guys talking about the Hugo Strange-Batman epic rivalry reminds me of the Ned Ryerson dialogue from Groundhog Day. (laughs) Rodney? (laughs) Ned! Ned Ryerson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was in that commercial this year too, the 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 Super Bowl commercial with Oh with, yeah. Uh, he was back. Ned Ryerson was back. <laughs> how that belly button thing go? Did you take that pro or did you go pro with it? I don't remember exactly how the line goes. But... Yeah. <laughs> uh Rodney Trainham, and I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, I think this is a new commenter. Welcome Rodney if you are new. Uh he praised the new direction of the podcast, citing our obvious affection for the stories in these last couple of episodes uh compared to what we had been doing in the uh, for the Denny O'Neill edited run. Rodney then said, Ryan and Chris, I do have to disagree with you on the cover to Detective 472. I thought the cover image of a supposedly dead Batman floating in front of the large tombstone declaring he is dead and a new one has taken his place. Uh, I, I mean, I think he's disagreeing with me because you, love, you loved that cover and I was a bit mm. more mm, kind of on it. Um, Rodney says the Batman silhouette on the tombstone hovering over the dead Batman added to that creepy feel. I remember first seeing that image as a young child on the bottom corner of the letters page in detective 475. I was mesmerized and freaked out by that image. I had not read this Hugo strange story and had no idea what the image signified for years. I wondered what story the image was telling me and would attempt to create stories around that image. Most of those stories were erased from memory when I picked up these strange apparitions trade from books a million. Uh, yeah. And yeah, you, you really like the cover and I like the image. I think it was the coloring that just kind of leaves me a little bit 
cold to <laughs> yeah it's kind of monochromatic in a yeah. lot of ways it's it's not a, it's not very it's com- especially compared to the red orange of the previous cover in the background mm-hmm. and you know it, it's kind of funny because I, I had a similar thing with uh, batman number 300 i saw a half page house ad for that in a very early just like the first justice league of america comic i got when i was you know as michael as our buddy michael bailey who was on this show previously would say you know i had it in my hand when i come out of the womb but uh (laughs) but but uh (laughs) that joke never gets old uh but i saw that image it was like batman in a spotlight taking off his cowl and like robin and alfred are standing next to him but robin's in the earth Two robin outfit and so i'm thinking and even at that in this marv wolfman even at that age, I knew what Earth 2 was. So, <laughs> and I got it. So I'm thinking, is this the Earth 2 Robin or is this like, what's going on? And so for years, I wondered about that. And then I, I found Batman 300, like, you know, in a comic shop years later and 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 bought it. And I have to say that the story's kind of a letdown. The <laughs> Batman number 300, the cover's better than the inside, even though it's drawn by Walt Simonson. Uh, the story is is David V. Reed, and it's very, it's a very strange last Batman story. That's all I'm going to say. I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of that. It, it's been done much better since then, but yeah. So it was kind, of, it was kind of a letdown. I thought there was a much cooler story inside. <laughs> uh, so our friend Gothos Mansion wrote in to say. Even though Hugo Strange hadn't made a new appearance since the Golden Age, the Batman number one famous first edition would have been published just a few years before this, so some readers may have recognized Hugo Hugo Strange from there. That's a good point. Okay, my personal experience with issue 471. Detective must not have been heavily distributed in my area because this was only the second issue I bought. I bought every comic with Batman on it, and if I found detectives, I would have bought them. I distinctly recall getting 471 at a store called The Carousel in Panama City, Florida while I was on vacation. I got lots of comics there on the yearly family vacations. I didn't get to read the conclusion of the story until the Shadow of the Batman reprint in 1986. Unfortunately, due to the spotty distribution back then, nine years isn't the longest I've had to wait between reading a part one and a part two. <laughs> yeah, same here, buddy. I, that I, took me years to read the rest of that Justice League JSA New God storyline. Good God, I had part one and never got part two and three till like 20 years later. <laughs> Uh, that was horrible. I don't remember what other comics I got this with this one, but I remember five or six-year-old me being disappointed that Batman lost. Since I was introduced to Batman via the TV show, you would think I would have understood the cliffhanger concept. I just thought Batman being unmasked was the end. Even at that young age, I was amazed by the Rogers Austin artwork. I had seen Rogers here, Adams, although unsigned, in stacked cards, which is the uh, Power Records book and record set, in the Race Treasury. Novick in the Race Treasury, Apero in Brave and the Bold, and Infantino in some Batman family reprints. Why didn't the Batman stories in Batman look as good as those? I don't know, because they had, no offense to John Cowlin, but they had him drawing Batman and Marshall Rogers drawing Detective Comics. (laughs) I think that's the problem. Yeah, Detective seemed to have the better pedigree for for a while so i don't know i mean that didn't change look at the where this podcast began when we had the you know the clown car rotation of artists on batman with the exception of the the batman year one story arc with mazzuccelli where we had alan davis for a long run and but like you know every issue of uh max allen collins run had a different artist on it yeah yeah that's true even the ones before that like the the two issues before that had different artists but yeah yeah, you're right. Yep, that's right. 
Uh, Lizanne Oswald said, The collage of the nightmare Bruce has is excellent and leads your eyes from character to character, and the typography of it is great, and how that word nightmare moves your eye with the art. As I learned in the Joe Kubert correspondence course... Not sure if that's meant to be a joke or not, but I like it. Uh, lettering and art should flow together, and each leading to the other, and why characters in a comic cover will lead your eyes to a title. From Raish and Talia all the way to Bruce facing the image of the bat, probably his inner demons and not man bat, but still it all works. I think we decided that that wasn't Raish and Talia. That was Dr. Todd Hunter and his assistant. Yeah, yeah they, they, it, they were certainly drawn to look. Actually, somebody else le- later on left the comment that uh, Dr. Todd Hunter was drawn to look like. Doctor Strange, which Stephen Englehart was quite familiar with. Yeah, that's true. You know, and, and one thing that, that got me, I never thought about this, but looking at that image again, when there's that one little tiny corner of the image that Lizanne talks about, the bat, the giant bat mm-hmm. that Batman's looking at, it reminds me of that cut scene from Batman Forever where Val Kilmer is standing in front of that big animatronic <laughs> bat that Rick Baker or Stan Winston or whoever it was, it was one of the two big guys did. I can't, I think it's Rick Baker worked on it and then they cut it out of the movie. It's like in the video you see yep. it and, yep. or something. And it's, you can find that scene online. I, but I it, remember seeing that in like either trailers or promo pieces or something or like one of the music videos or something and just yeah. being like fascinated. Like, what is this scene going to be? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you see, you see, uh, you see the bat in the movie very briefly, but you don't see Bruce like Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne standing in front of it. So it made me think of that. And and Liz Ann, if you really did take a Joe Kubert correspondence course, man, you have you have the patience of Joe because you've never brought this up in, amongst all these Rob Kelly centric podcasts. <laughs> so <laughs> if you're another another person who some had anything to do with the Joe Kubert school, good on you. But let us know because you know that's you know we always picking on Rob about. It's like Rob hasn't name dropped lately that he went to the Joe Hubert schools. So. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, we got a comment from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog who said, I can remember getting the second part of the Joker fish story at a yard sale as a kid. I found the first issue you covered this episode in a bargain box, albeit relatively scragged. And I have tried to find other issues since then when affordable, but I was lucky enough to get the trade. So I was able to read all this story. Finally, Yes, Rogers is incredible. His silver is gorgeous. His Batman is uh, athletic and strong. And here Strange is, well, strange. Just perfect art to fit this story's tone. (laughs) Uh, Our good buddy Michael Bailey, who you previously heard earlier in this episode from the Fortress of Baileytude, said, After listening to your discussion on how Silver St. Cloud was drawn in these issues and how Englehart worked some subtle comments on how she and Bruce formed the Beast with two backs... Uh, have caused me to somewhat reevaluate the issues I have with contemporary writers and their need to show Batman having sex on rooftops or docks or wherever the likes of Azarello and Miller set these scenes. It's not that I think they are suddenly a good move on the part of the creators. Far from it. I'm not a prude, and I'm not one of these people who is fine with wholesale violence, but clutch my pearls as I fall on the fainting couch with a mere mention of two consenting adults engaging in whatever activities they want to engage in. However, I think context is key. To be fair, Englehart was working during a much more restrictive time in mainstream comic books. The publishers and the code had started to relax a bit during the 70s, but you would never have seen Catwoman and Batman getting it on in full view of the reader back then. So, this is not an apples-to-apples situation. Personally, I don't read a Batman story for the love interests. Sometimes that works out very well, sometimes it doesn't, but it's not why I'm coming to the party. 
but if you are going to explore that side of him, for my money, Englehart's side is preferable. It's not that I am adverse to Batman having relations, but I don't need to see them in all of their four-color glory. There is a maturity to Silver and Bruce's relationship, which is where the context thing comes in. There was probably a bit of say no more, say no more, wink wink, nudge nudge, going on with Silver making a sly joke about their nocturnal activities. But it comes off as being cheeky and fun rather than look at what Batman and Black Canary are doing. They're having sex in public because comics are for adults and adults have sex, which is how a lot of modern romantic bat encounters feel. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. You know, and... And I, I, I think those two particular scenes are just nothing. I mean, they're there's no class. There's absolutely no class. And, you know, the, you can you get the relationship between Bruce and Silver because they are kind of like, you know, like they're 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 slyly talking about it, a month, you know, just back and forth. And that makes their relationship more endearing, too, because it's like not only are they, you know, engaged in a physical relationship, but they're, you know, they're they're having fun with it, too, because they're, you know, they're making little sly comments to one another, which which makes it more endearing. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because around the same time, there's that famous Superman issue where it's intimated that him and uh, Clark Kent, when he had lost his powers, spent the night with Lois Lane. And then there's there's the one I know since Andy was on this show, he'd want to bring up the uh, issue of Amazing Spider-Man where uh, it seems as if it's pretty apparent that Peter Parker and, and Betty Brant slept together, even though Betty Brant was actually Betty Brant Leeds and just estranged from her husband at that moment. So, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Superheroes were we definitely turned a corner with with the superhero sex lives in the uh, in the mid to late seventies around this time. <laughs> but thank God they weren't like doing it on the docks or rooftops, you know. So <laughs> right, I I do think another distinction in this case between the different relationships is Englehart is referring to a sexual encounter between Silver and Bruce, not Batman. And the difference mm-hmm. with the other ones in the more modern context is in the New 52, Batman and Catwoman slept together. It wasn't Bruce and Selina. They were in costume. It was after like an event. And in fact, I, the issue actually ends with Catwoman saying most of the clothes stay on or most of the costumes stay on. Um, and then like in the, the all-star Batman one, it's like Batman and Black Canary in costume. They're like stripping down. And, get it. and I think making them in costume as part of their superhero identity adds a kink factor to it, which I am not against. If that's your thing, fine. That's that's. I'm not ascribing a, a judgment to that, but I think I, I I think part of that was the writers attempting to be a bit more shocking about it than that by putting them yeah. in their costumes. It was an attempt to be provocative for the sake of being provocative and shocking and and, and like slapping the reader along the face. It wasn't mature and sophisticated i mean it was it was the way a 13 year old thinks maturity is like the same as nudity and and you know harsh language they think that that's what you know mature is but that's not so yeah yeah i i it's like again not being a judgment on them having sex in costume there's anything wrong with that except that for me it feels like the presentation is just meant to be a little bit more sophomoric and childish right right Exactly, I agree. Yeah, it's it's like the same thing in New Fifty Two when they made Starfire a, a total, 
You know, yeah. she she didn't even remember who the hell she couldn't even tell the difference between who the hell she slept with and things like that. You know, all humans look alike to me. Did I sleep with you? I'm not sure. You know, that type of thing. You know, it, it just that was that was nothing but just just again, just to be provocative, just to be shocking. I think, uh, you know, and I mean, I know you can. Well, all comics are somewhat of a power fantasy by the writer, like, you know, basically putting what they want to see that, you know, the characters, you know, they're, they're, it's it's basically a fantasy that they're just translating. And I think a lot of this goes to that, too. That's, you know, it says, right. it, it says something about the, the creators of the comics that are like, well, this is what I want to see, you know, and it's <laughs> like, it's like, is this really what you want to see? It's like, hmm, OK, you know, it's like, well, what does that say about you? Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, brother. Uh <laughs> Ado Bosnar said, I would say that one thing I like about this Hugo Strange story in particular is that it portrays Batman as fallible and also gives Robin a chance to shine. And naturally, there's more character building for Silver St. Cloud. It's just great stuff all around. Oh, yeah, yeah, th- definitely. This is exactly, you said it exactly. This is what this is. And they do a fantastic job with it. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, now this is some Batman. Uh, and that was it. That was the entirety of his comment. He must have hit send accidentally because he didn't. He didn't stop to insult anybody. Right. Uh, Ward Hill Terry said, "Oh, how I wish I could have been in on this discussion. I can't write nearly enough of what I want to think about regarding these comics." Well, I did cut out some of his comments to just make this a little bit faster. Um, first memories I remember being simultaneously disappointed and intrigued by Marshall and Terry's first go at the storyline. Part of the disappointment was a carryover from the previous Simonson Milgram issues. I remember my older sister asking me, why is art on Batman so bad now? She judged comic art based on Mike Grell, and, well, this wasn't quite up to Grell level. And yet, and yet, there were those neat buildings and action shots and detail to wardrobe and... And, and. Even now, looking at it, I can see the stiffness in the figures in the first few pages, the tentative line work of Terry Austin on the male faces, the lack of heft and depth, but by the back half of the book, they are starting to hit their stride. Regarding the story that Chris related about Rogers and Austin getting chewed out by Joe Orlando, I don't doubt it. Their work does not match what DC was publishing back then. Think Dylan McLaughlin, Swan Oxner, Novick, Apero, Kubert, and the mystery stories. Rogers was carving the page in many more panels, and Austin was using a much thinner line than those veterans. Even to my 12-year-old eyes, it was a little odd. All credit to Julius Schwartz for choosing them and sticking with them, despite his lack of credit on the splash page. The page of Silver and Dick on the phone is a frickin' masterpiece. I was already a Robin fan. This appearance cemented it. Why, oh why, couldn't Dick look and act like this in all of his other stories? The hair, not only did Marshall update his original hairstyle, it was also utterly contemporary. That was essentially the look in 1977, parted in the middle and blown dry. Think Tom Petty on the cover of Damn the Torpedoes. John Workman, all caps with like five exclamation points. Look at those letters. Look at the shape of those balloons. This was the final piece. We are doing an homage to Batman's earliest stories, and that includes the look of the captions. Also, the coloring of Jerry Serpe. All you need to do is look at how he colors silver in that panel of her in bed. Her skin has some sort of peach tone that somehow looks like no other character's skin tone. Amazing. 
Oh, and one more thing, I hope. Even though I love, love, love the sequence on page two, that's not what chimneys look like from the inside. I'm sure that Rogers and Austin, with their architectural acumen, knew this, but why ruin a great page? Exactly, yeah. yeah. You gotta go with what looks best, but, you know, it's kind of funny when he he said that about uh, Joe Orlando reading a Mariah Act, which I read that from DC Implosion, the or comic book Implosion, the book I was mentioned last time. But there's also another book, the book that we brought up earlier in this episode, the uh, Batcave Companion. Well, of course, there's a section in there about the Englehart Rogers Austin run. And in that section, Terry Austin basically says that a lot of the crap he got was because he liked to ink with a pen. He didn't like to ink with a brush. So that's that there goes your thinner line. You know, he's inking with technical pens, whereas a lot of the inkers, especially back then, were inking with uh, still inking with a brush. And a lot of them prefer to brush anyway. But and then. He actually had a little bit of a dig at Joe Orlando, and he said, you know, basically we were getting grief from the the least of the EC original EC artists, basically, is what he was <laughs> – he was kind of like, yeah, Joe Orlando worked for EC, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Wallywood, he wasn't a Jack Davis, he was, you know, he, you know, he's basically, you know, that's basically what he was saying, so he was kind of – it was kind of nice that he got <laughs> – he got a he got a little dig in on him because he, you know, I guess he just browbeat him to death, but – I, I will say, you know, yeah, there were those art teams at DC, but man, there was some really not great artwork at DC at that time too. I mean, all you got to do is kind of look at some of the. I mean, I don't want to call out any names and stuff, but there were a lot of good people over at Marvel at that time, and not as many great artists at DC. I think he pretty much named all of them. There was a lot of journeyman, you know, just kind of uh, mediocre work going on at DC at that time. It was serviceable, but that's about it. So I, I, you know, just look at any comics from around that date and you'll see that I think, you know, I think Joe Orlando had his head up his rear end. That's all I'm going to say. Siskoid wrote in to say, ever since you changed formats, I've been trying to decide what my favorite Batman story run is and coming up empty. I mean, does Lego Batman count? And is Batman and the Outsiders on the table, or do Rob and I still have to cover it somewhere? <laughs> I don't, we haven't discussed Batman and the Outsiders. I don't, I don't know if it, you know that you know that will ever cover an issue of that or not. Maybe who knows? I don't know. If this podcast is still a going thing in you know two two thousand twenty five, sure, maybe we'll get to Batman and the Outsiders. <laughs> Um, and I have no problem if Lego Batman is your favorite Batman story. I, I absolutely think that is a legit answer to that question. Oh yeah, most definitely. It's definitely, it's, yeah, I've been watching, uh, uh my, my family and I've been watching the Lego Masters show on, uh, the shows on Fox. We've been watching on Hulu. It's, it's a lot of fun and Will Arnett is the host. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's hilarious. I love that guy, and he's he, he's a great Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I even, I mean, I even love like the the stories embedded within the the video games, Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. Uh, I mean, I know. I, I know those games have kind of gotten a bad reputation for possibly contributing to the the persona of the Batman bro who thinks Batman is just somebody who punches and kicks ass and beats up people until that's the end of the story. But I, I think that is kind of shortchanging like the story. I mean, there is some some interesting story and detective work embedded within those stories, and it's a good characterization. You see all of his villains, uh, very cool interpretations of them. So, I mean, I, I love playing those games, and, and, just, uh, and not just for the, the action of, you know, beating the crap out of the Penguin or something like that. It's you know, it's 
good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely I didn't play him as much as watch my son play him, mm-hmm. uh, but but I you know I know because he, he would call me and hey dad look at this or I'd sit there and watch him and I know there was yeah there was definitely much more of a detective component to those than almost any Batman movie they've ever made. So mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can't really yeah uh, it's a video game so there's going to be a lot of fighting in it. I mean that's you know uh, but but yeah I think I think they actually you know people may have taken away just the violence from it but I think they're they definitely serve the character. Right. And it doesn't hurt that I think didn't Paul Dini write the story for yep, most of yep. those games? So yep. yeah. All right. Terrence Stewart said, longtime listener to FW Podcast Network, first time posting because I couldn't pass up the chance to comment on what is probably my all time favorite Batman run. Well, thank you and welcome, Terrence. Welcome. Hope you like the show. Yes. I read all of these issues as they were being released, and my first issue of Detective Comics with the iconic creative team of Steve Englehart, Marshall Rogers, and Terry Austin was like snorting a line of pure Coke. Not that I would know what snorting a line of pure Coke was like in London 77. I was only 12, but it seems apropos of the time period. <laughs> this whole run exuded sophistication from Engelhart's portrayal of the suave playboy millionaire Bruce Wayne in contrast to a grim, forceful, but not infallible Batman to Silver St. Cloud, the best damn girlfriend Bruce ever had to Rogers and Austin's amazing Gotham cityscapes to a very sexy Dick Grayson. I just wish they'd been able to include Catwoman at some point. Yeah, if they could have had their version of Catwoman in the storyline. Yeah. Um, the run worked so well because it was finite. Englehart only signed a contract to write a year's worth of Batman and Justice League of America after leaving Marvel, planning to move to Europe to write novels. He wrote what he planned to be his Batman story in one go without even knowing who would be drawing it or where it would appear. Rogers and Austin being assigned the comic after the first two issues created the magic. Those first two issues with Walt Simonson and Al Milgram are fun, but the creative team doesn't quite gel. And Rogers' first two issues with Len Wein, immediately following Englehart, suffer from Wein's weak scripting. I recently read the Len Wein Batman collection, having fond memories of his time on Batman, but came away deflated and weirdly fixated on the number of times that Wein has Batman call someone a punk. Seriously, Ween's Batman is ripe for a drinking game. Down a shot every time Batman uses the pejorative punk, and you'll come away absolutely legless. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan and Chris, for a great podcast. Maybe you could tackle the later 2000s mini by the all-time best Batman creative team at some point down the line. Uh, maybe we'll do Dark Detective at some point. Uh, I liked it, but I, I, and it was great, and I'm glad that they did it. It was great, and I would have supported... Dark Detective 2, for sure. But I, I will say that it didn't quite recapture the magic, but it I I felt like it was one of those cases where it was a good it was good. I enjoyed it. The art was was great. I, I wasn't as crazy about the story, but I will support DC giving those guys who, you know, they built a reputation on work any day of the week, you know. Uh so if they there's like one issue that Rogers of the sequel, the sequel, sequel, the sequel to the sequel, Dark Detective 2 that Rogers actually drew. And I know that Englehart and Austin were pushing to have it released in some fashion and maybe have, you know, some other artists finish the series up. But DC said no. But I think at that point, DC had moved beyond giving two craps about their history. So, you know, um, <laughs> um, I'd love to see it done. But yeah, maybe some down, somewhere down the line we'll, we can do Dark Detective. 
Hart and Rogers are known for this great run, but they kind of don't overlap seamlessly because you had Inglehart does these two issues without Rogers in the beginning, and Rogers does two issues without Inglehart at the end. And what if you had been able to like slide those together? And I, I'm just wondering, like if if Rogers had come along from the first two issues that we covered with that Doctor Phosphorus story, um, and, and how much better and more cohesive the whole thing would have felt. But also then taking that to the next thing, like what if then you had Walt Simonson on the Lenwein story with Clayface three, like mm. uh, assu- just assuming that it was using the same character design would have been one thing to still see Walt Simonson do a character like that. I think would have been very very cool and interesting because uh, I think he like if you look at his stuff on Thor and X Factor, a character like Clayface three would have been up his alley and would have been really kind of interesting. Um, but also, even if he had just if he had designed the character himself, how much different would it have been? So, yeah, I, I personally like Lynn Ween's Batman Batman mm-hmm, run. Me too. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I maybe it is a step step down in some ways from the Englehart written issues, but uh, I, I don't think it's as daring. I don't think it's as uh, I don't think it has a mission statement like Englehart's like mission statement of going back to the golden age and 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 kind of and I mean, you know. Because and partially because Englehart was gonna, you know, he was walking out the door, so he's like, "This is it. This is my one chance at Batman." You know, Len Wein was probably like, "Yeah, I'll probably stay writing Batman for the next couple years." So, you know, I, I can, you know, he didn't, he didn't have like this, this burning desire to to write. And what it, his mind was the, the definitive Batman, probably. Right. Uh, you know, he was just out to write good Batman stories, and uh, although he did end up writing the Untold Legend of the Batman, which you know. Uh, in some ways, is the definitive the definitive history of the Earth One Batman. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't mind. I know Andy and Michael covered some Len Wein stuff, but I actually wouldn't mind us covering some Len Wein Batman written stories uh, yeah. down the line as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Mick wrote in to say, I believe I first came to be aware of these stories when I purchased the greatest Batman stories ever told in the magical summer of 1989. As an Arden Apparel Adams fan, I was blown away by the sophistication and inventiveness of the Rogers Austin art team. Their Batman is up there with the aforementioned Adams Apparel and possibly Jerry Robinson as the definitive Batman. And what to say of Englehart's story scripting? I think this is the closest we ever came to a Marvel-style Batman, a true creature of the night and harbinger of justice, but not the grim, humorless bat god that is so prevalent today. This Batman could induce nightmares in criminals, but also worry about relationship problems with Silver St. Cloud, the greatest Batman love interest of all. This Batman was a superhero. On the one hand, it's a shame that we didn't get a few more years of this collective team together to chronicle Batman's adventures, but the thrill of this being a contained story with a beginning, middle, and end also makes it that much more satisfying. Yeah, that's that's well said. You know, if it, if the run, if Englehart had stayed on for an, another year or so, you know, maybe it would have diluted the the impact of this. You know, in, in historically, anyway. I I actually I like what he was saying about this being the closest to a Marvel type of Batman story and kind of bringing some of that energy, maybe a little bit more realism and and making Gotham more lived in with the corrupt city council and with the buildings and everything, kind of giving it that that feel that this is part of our world and our universe and not a world with a metropolis and a Superman something like that. I think that's an interesting take. Yeah, I mean you know if you think about it. 
the fact that, you know, spoiler warning, uh, when uh, how this ends with Batman coming between Silver and, and Bat and Bruce, it's a lot like, you know, Spider-Man came between Betty Brant and Peter Parker. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't know he was Spider-Man, but Spider-Man was involved in the bro- death of her brother. And so she just couldn't even stand to see Spider-Man. And then later, you know, the whole thing with when Gwen Stacy thought Spider-Man had killed, you know, her right. uh, had been involved in the death of her father. So, I mean, yeah, and it, he Engelhart definitely brought the Marvel subplot and the strong supporting cast that DC had honestly never really had before on their main in their main comics. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their main characters. So, yeah, definitely. This is the you know, they always talk about the marvelization that that John Byrne brought to Superman and Man of Steel. Well, Steve Englehart got it here a decade earlier. So <laughs> Tim Price said these are first reads for me as my comic collecting hadn't kicked into gear yet. I've heard about it before, of course, and now reading on the DCU app. Wow, I can see why this run is so beloved. It's great to follow along with you guys, and I'm glad you started the all-new Nightcast with it. Thank you. Side note, I heard Hugo Strange first appeared in 1940, and my nerd brain thinks, wait, wouldn't that be an Earth-2 Batman adventure? So isn't this the first appearance of Earth-1 Hugo Strange? But then I thought about Robin's awesome fight scene, so I'm good now. <laughs> Does anyone else see similarities between the artwork in these issues and Bill Willingham's style? Mm, yeah, I can see like, but yeah, I can see that kind of the, especially when their their anatomy's a little elongated and mm, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I can I can see a little bit, but yeah, the basically you know the whole thing with Earth One, Earth Two, Batman is almost every Earth Two story also happened to the Earth One Batman up to a certain point. You know, basically yeah. <laughs> is what it amounts to. Their their histories are shared. Basically, you know, it's. So, um, yeah, and it, which you can't really say that for Superman because – and I kind of wish they hadn't. I, they, it was neat that they did this, but they kind of probably shouldn't have when they made him work at the Daily Star, like definitively. Su- Earth 2 Superman worked at the Daily Star because that was a very short-lived concept in the early Superman comics that quickly changed the Daily Planet. So it kind of throws a monkey wrench, and, and if you go back and read actual Golden Age stories and and then you got to you know juxtapose well what happened to the Earth One Superman there's there's a little bit more of a definitive line between Earth One and Earth Two Superman than there is Earth One and Earth Two Batman so mm. well I mean, the same could be said for like post crisis <laughs> Superman and Batman too yeah. exactly yeah so we're basically yeah you're, yeah th- yeah exactly the more things change the more they stay the same it's it's basically what we came into when we started this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Dick really is great as Robin, but gee whiz, he's needlessly cruel to Silver. Why the heck couldn't he have said he'd check up on Bruce? He could have come up with a reason later as to why Robin subsequently showed up. Of course, it wouldn't have fooled her. The first time she saw Dick in swimming trunks, it'd be over. I'm talking about his legs. Get your minds out of the gutter. Okay, sorry, Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. Dick Grayson's got the famous the what the best ass in comics. Apparently, he's he's com- he's comic books ass, and you know, like he's America's ass. He's comic books ass. So I was just you know, but anyway, I wonder if Dick's tunic getting ripped was in the script. I suspect it was Roger's idea, a way to make the now adult Robin look a little sexy. I love that look. Isn't John Workman a gem? Those Golden Age drop caps are terrific at helping set the mood. I just did a retro review at Too Dangerous for a Girl of Wonder Woman number 230, the one with the fantastic Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name. (laughs) Cheetah War Bonds cover. And there, the villain's word balloons have little spikes dripping off them to match this issue's claws of the cheetah gimmick. 
As art director for Heavy Metal at this point, I don't doubt that Workman came up with this sort of thing himself. He'd be a brilliant interviewee for some podcast or other. Oh, wow, I didn't even know John Workman was the art director for Heavy Metal, so that's yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, that's a guy that I would like to learn more about because he's a hell of a letterer. Now we know this about him. And I know he drew the Justice League profile in that the Silver Age event, Secret Files. Mm-hmm. And he he could freaking mock Mike Sikowski's Silver Age style like nobody. I mean, I, I thought it was a piece of Sikowski art that they had found and somehow sub Black Canary in for Wonder Woman. But no, it was mm-hmm. all John Workman just aping his style. So And... Getting back to the comment, uh, his Martin's first comment with, you know, why couldn't Dick have just said something else, like, you know, something more reassuring, like, I'll check up on him. Uh, the no prize I might ascribe to that is Dick doesn't know Silver. He doesn't know that she's getting close to Bruce or, or the, how serious their relationship might be. He thinks this is just another woman that Bruce has been sleeping with, and it's probably going to be easier for everything if he helps facilitate their breakup, because that'll help Bruce maintain his secret identity. So he might not think... Silver deserves to be reassured like that. It might be easier if they break and that's not to be cruel, that's just kind of like the lifestyle that they've been leading that might just be like the lie he's always been trained to tell, so uh, right, maybe, yeah. maybe something along those lines. Because I know there's a scene in an upcoming issue where uh, Bruce and Dick go visit her at the hospital and Dick kind of Dick does kind of apologize to her and I think and and then you know Dick leaves the room when they're getting hot and heavy in the in the in the hospital room and I think then Dick realizes okay okay maybe there's more to this Silver Saint Cloud so yeah I think you're right I think she was just the the accessory that had been on Bruce's arm the evening before and she somehow knew something had happened to him you know basically. Right. <laughs> Dick was Dick was playing the part of Pepper Potts from the first Iron Man movie. You know, sometimes he has to take out the trash. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and our final comment on the website came from Jimmy McGlinchey, who said, Hugo Strange is very much up there in the pantheon of Bat villains, but is a character that does not make a lot of appearances. Looking at his Wikipedia entry, apart from the story you have just covered, the main Strange story I remember is Prey from the Legends of the Dark Knight series by Munch and Glacey. Fun fact... We actually talked about covering that story with Andy and Michael for this uh, crossover event. Yeah, we did. Uh, Yeah, Jimmy says, I wonder why Strange is a character that writers do not wish to cover. Is it just the fact that having someone know that Batman is Bruce Wayne limits the type of stories that one can tell? In any case, Englehart and Rogers drew an excellent tale out of Strange and sowed the seeds for future stories with Thorn, Penguin, Joker, and Silver in these two issues. Hopefully it won't be too long before we catch up to those tales with you. Well, I, I don't think it'll be too long. In fact, I'm hoping that we'll be back to those by the summer. Um, as it's going, as this podcast is back on a somewhat monthly schedule, and we're going to try and get these out at the beginning of each month, either on like a Friday or a Monday. Um, based on the uh, the Patreon poll that we had after last episode, uh, which I got to tell you, for like the longest time was very, very close. Like we we put up the three options. It was continue the next two issues of Stephen Gilhart and Marshall Rogers, do Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams issues, or Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle issues. And for a long time, like up until like two days before that poll ended, it was like there were two points separating the first and third 
It was like there was a one point <laughs> difference between each of the three choices. Uh, and finally, O'Neill and Adams got a couple of more votes uh, in like the last day of the poll. So yeah, so we just did these um, this Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams story with uh, with Michael, and we're going to do another one on an episode of the Overlooked Dark Knight, which you can find very quickly. And then next month, uh, so for June, we're going to do two more issues of the O'Neill and Adams run, and that'll probably be their first two stories from Detective Comics 395 and 397. Then after that, I do want to come back to uh, the Englehart and Rogers run. Uh, and because there are only four more issues that Englehart did, I think we'll wrap those up in two episodes. So that'll be the July and August episode, the July and August episodes. Uh, and then we can go back to uh, what I promised was the uh, the fever two part story arc from the post crisis detective by Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. That is the story that introduces the villain of the ventriloquist and Scarface. Uh, so that can be in September. And then I think for October for Halloween, let's say we do the Man Bat storyline. The, there you go. The Frank Robbins Neil Adams Man Bat cover uh, books, at least the first two parts. That'd be awesome, yeah, yeah. Rob and I just covered uh, Robin meets Man Bat on uh, Power Records. Uh, we we did it years ago when they were doing when they were doing it. Uh, when Rob was just doing a random Power Record episodes on the the Aquaman Firestorm Fire and Water show, uh, but we went back and did it again because that was like the very first podcast I ever did. So, oh yeah, nice. It's been uh, we special editioned it, I guess you can say. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, I've got uh, I've got uh, Jones for uh, I'm always up for for Neil Adams Man Bat and then uh, yeah I've actually got those those actually issues I've got all the first I don't know the first four or five Man Bat appearances all the ones Neil Adams drew I've oh, got cool. the actual issues of so yeah I've got them before they got pricey <laughs> so <laughs> yeah I, I've got the the reprint the Batman versus Man Bat or whatever it was called the reprint that has the first three issues all together so okay yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's um, cool. Um, before we take off, uh, is there anything that you want to plug in terms of possibly a book that you contributed to that just came out recently? <laughs> yes, actually. Yes. Thank you for this opportunity to plug. Uh, yes, I contributed to a book that was recently, uh, published, um, uh, by uh, crazy eight press, um, that, uh, is edited by Jim Beard. Uh, Jim is a, well-known writer. Uh, he's a comic fan made good, well-known writer of uh, many different properties that, that we know. He's written books on many properties or edited books on a lot of properties we like. And uh, he edited a book called Zlonk Zog Zowie, The Subterranean Blue Grotto Guide to Batman 66 Season 1. And uh, there's essays uh, from different writers on each episode of Batman 66 Season 1. And I wrote uh, one on uh, an episode featuring Frank Gorshin's Riddler. Nice. And yeah, and it was a lot of fun to work on. And I'm actually, uh, there's a sequel for, uh, coming out for season two, and I'm actually working on that one now. But that uh, Zlong Zog Zowie is available on Amazon in uh, both print and Kindle form. And also, uh, keep your ears peeled. Actually, it'll probably be out. It'll be out. I'd already have been out by the time you hear this, but uh, I did an interview with Jim Beard on the FW Presents. Uh, feed all about his career and this book in particular and i had a lot of fun talking to jim he is a huge batman fan he knows his stuff he's a huge justice society of america fan as well he's a huge comic fan and i found out some things about him he owns some some items from one of our favorite writers i won't spoil it but i when i told uh, uh rob and ryan what they were they were both like oh you know so <laughs> 
<laughs> and me as well. So uh, he has Don Newton's brain. <laughs> he has Don. <laughs> they saved Don Newton's brain, if only. Yeah. <laughs> Now I feel kind of bad that we said that. <laughs> oh God! Uh, but no, <laughs> Don Newton's brain. That's like, oh geez. Uh, I don't even know where to go after that. I, but no, definitely I don't, check. I, don't either. I will. I yeah. As soon as you announced that, I went. I got the. I got the Amazon Kindle version of the book because I wasn't sure how reliable uh, shipping the print copy would be. Although it seems like that that hasn't been a problem because a few. I, I, we know other people like Rob who have gotten the book. Um, but right. yeah, I got the the Kindle version. Um, I haven't read it yet. I probably won't. I don't really like reading very much. <laughs> uh, but but I'm looking forward to it. I actually what what I need to do is though I need to watch that episode before I read your essay because I'm definitely intrigued in that and I, I want to see that. So have the have the proper context because I haven't watched. I, re- I honestly I haven't watched that show any episodes of it in years. I I bought the movie when Adam West died a couple of years ago. I bought that movie and watched that actually when we were going to HeroesCon. But yeah. yeah, it's been it's been a long time since I've actually watched episodes of the show. So I need to get back to that. Yeah, and I encourage anybody to go back if you haven't watched the series in a long time, the the uh, the cleaned up Blu-ray and in the, the the Blu-ray presentation or if you're watching it streaming, I mean the the episodes look fantastic and 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 the hook of my article is noticing things that you never noticed before in in episodes. So um, each each essay in the book's got a uh, an angle. Jim pushed for you know come up with an angle. We don't want this to just be you know it's just a synopsis of the episode. No, you got to come at it from like a certain direction. And everybody every author had to come up with a hook. And Jim had to like okay the hook. So Jim was. He was he was very involved in in how this book uh, read because he didn't want it to just be you know a Wikipedia entry sure, you know yeah, for yeah. each in print so uh, but yeah the hook is definitely pay attention to what you couldn't see before over crappy UHF uh, <laughs> transmission or bad TV you know uh, just a, a tube TV set you know uh, what you see nowadays so yeah definitely check that out I think I think it's I mean the the people that are involved in that book but you know I I, I don't know how the hell I got book Chuck Dixon wrote a Say Paul Kupperberg wrote an essay. Robert Greenberger wrote an essay. Uh, Dan Greenfield, that's um, mine and Rob's yeah. boss on Thirteen Dimension, Thirteenth yep. Dimension. He wrote an essay. Uh, John S. Drew from the Bat Cave podcast. So there's there's a ton of, and I'm left out a bunch of people. That's just off the that's just off the top of my head. Lots of great uh, people uh, in that book that I somehow made it into. So definitely check it out. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, well, yeah, that's going to bring this episode of, I, I guess we, we have to call this the Overlooked Dark Nightcast special crossover event yeah. to a right. close. Um, yeah, look for uh, our, our team up with Michael Bailey and Andrew Leyland on a forthcoming episode of the Overlooked Dark Night. We had a ton of fun on the next part of the show. I hope you can tell that. Uh, until then, we will be back in about a month to cover... Uh, uh, what are the episodes called, or what are the stories? Secret of the Waiting Graves, and what's the other one? Paint a Picture of Peril. There you go. That's it. Those are the two issues. So, uh, yeah, look for those, uh, and we will be back soon. Come together. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. 
You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.